So good to see you this morning. You look beautiful and great on this great midsummer morning. And I want to welcome everybody who's watching online. And uh, just thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest here this morning, I just want to welcome you especially. And I want to say we're so glad that you're here. Immediately following the service, if you wouldn't mind just going directly to right out into the grand foyer there to our guest services, we've got some information for you. If you have some questions, ask the person next to you, and they'll even be glad to take you out there, and we'll give you some information, and we want you to have what you need to make a good decision. And my prayer is this, that you would consider and pray about making Central Community your permanent church home. I want to welcome all the leaders from Winshape, and I want to tell you we have been waiting for you, and we are so glad that you are here. So we're praying for you this week. We're excited about what God is going to do, and um, I can't wait to hear the stories afterwards. I remember I was a freshman on the basketball team at Concordia University. It was in St. Paul, Minnesota. That's where I was going to school then. We had a very talented group of men. But the problem was is we just couldn't seem to get it together. There was friction all the time, and our head coach, even though he tried, he just couldn't get us all on the same page. I remember we were approaching the mid-season, and the coach decided that he was going to make a change. And so he inserted me into the starting lineup. Now, we were playing a team from called Hamlin University. They were a Division III school, and they were, they were one of the basketball powerhouses in the Twin Cities. And I will tell you that we lost, but we only lost by a couple points, and we lost it at the end of the game. I have to tell you that there was this excitement among the team because for the very first time, we played together and it made a huge difference. Now, one of the things that you need to know is that the young man that I replaced was a senior. He also happened to be an all-conference offensive lineman on the football team, and his name was Jerry. After the game against Hamlin University, I can remember to this day where I was, I was sitting and leaning up against the wall, And the coach was rather enthusiastic about the fact that even though we lost, he saw something that he hadn't seen before. It was a group of guys that came together, and they were working together, and there was progress, and then it happened. Jerry got up, and he walked over to me, and he looked down at me, and I could see the anger. No, I could see the rage in his eyes. And he said to me, he said, Bobby, this has nothing to do with you. He turned and walked over to the coach, and with one punch to the jaw, he knocked him out. Now, our coach was a pastor. Everybody scrambled to get Jerry under control, and they got him out of the locker room. Well, that was a Saturday night. On Monday then, as we went to practice, I was rather interested to see what was going to happen. I noticed that there were several players that were missing. 
As the coach walked in, he walked in with an ice pack on his jaw. I'm sorry, but I had to laugh just a little bit. He gathered us all together and he said, guys, he said, listen, we all know what happened on Saturday night and what we're just gonna simply say is, my face walked into Jerry's fist. And then he said, as you can tell, there are several players, including Jerry, that are no longer here. They've quit the team. And then he said, I want you to know I'm not planning on adding anybody. It's just us nine. And if we need an extra man to scrimmage, we'll grab the manager. That was in the beginning, in the middle of the season, and our record at that time was 2-13. and 13. The rest of the season, we went 14-1. and one. We won the conference, going from last place to first place. We won the regional tournament, beating the team in the championship game who had beaten us earlier by 30, and we qualified for the national tournament in Norfolk, Nebraska. Now, if you were to ask me what in the world happened, how did a team that was 2-13 and 13 all of a sudden turn it around, and I would give you an answer. You know what the answer is? Love. We just loved each other. That's what we did. Now, here's what I want you to hear this morning as I deliver my very simple message to all of us. It's amazing what can happen when a group of people realize that the name on the front of their jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on their back. I want to say that one more time, church. It's amazing what can happen when the name on the front of the jersey is a lot more important than the name on the back. Amen? Amen. Stand with me out of respect for God's word. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through the first part of 39. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray together. Father, you have told us in your word to be strong and courageous. But you have also told us that we have an enemy and he prowls the earth looking for those that he might devour. Give us wisdom to recognize his ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You probably remember it wasn't too long ago that we did a series called The Armor of God. How many of you remember that? Oh, thank you so much for raising your hands. <laughs> During that series, you remember there was a specific Bible passage. It was Ephesians 6, verse 11, that we used as one of our core passages. I want to show you that passage once again, just to kind of bring us up to where we are. Here's what it is. 
put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's, what's that last word? Schemes. I want to talk about that word schemes a little bit. Another word is methods. Another word to describe it would be strategies. Here's what I want you to understand, church. Satan cannot read your mind, but he's very observing. He watches how you respond to temptation. He knows your weaknesses. He sees how you handle sin. He knows how he can entice you. And because of that, for every single one of you in this room, he has a plan, he has a strategy. What's his plan, what's his strategy, what's his purpose? To steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do to you. And I hate to break your bubble, but it's not really you he's worried about. He hates the Jesus in you. And as much as he has a plan, a strategy, a method to hurt you, his bigger plan is destroy the church. He hates the church. And the Bible tells us that whenever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of us. Oh, that drives him crazy. And so what Satan does is he has strategies for how he can break us apart. I want you to hear this in the way I mean it, and that's in love. God did not create us to be independent. God created us to be interdependent. That's his word, not mine. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have discipleship groups. That's why we gather together on Sunday morning. This is not natural, right? It's not natural to have faith. You can't tell me when you rolled over this morning, you would think, oh, I got to go to church this morning. It's okay to say that. I say it all the time. (laughs) And my wife reminds me, no, you have to preach today. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I love to come here. But you need to understand is that Satan doesn't want this to happen. That's why I know there are some of you who are watching online, and I, that's awesome that you can do it. But the Bible is also pretty clear about don't get lazy and forsake the gathering of the body, right? Now, let me ask you something. Why is it that Satan doesn't like us gathering together? There's power in numbers. I don't think we understand that. There is power when we gather together. And Satan says, that's why his plan is, how can we move them apart from each other? Because when they're on their own, boy, then I can attack. Then I can plant seeds, and there's nobody there to encourage them or make them feel better. My friends, rest assured, Satan knows where he's going. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to take as many of us with him as possible. What I want to talk about today is one of the strategies of Satan that I think sometimes we forget. And I think on a day like this, we really need to be aware of it. Are you ready for it? This means yes. Are you ready for it? Here it is. If you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. In the book of Nehemiah, the children of Israel are in captivity. It's their punishment. They've been exiled. And God made it very clear to them. He said, if you disobey me, he said, there's punishment coming. 
But you know, God never ends it right there, does he? You know what he says? He says, however, if you call out my name, I will remember you and I will bring you back together. Do you remember how long they were in captivity? It was about 70 years. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the leader of the Persian government is a man by the name of Artaxerxes. And one day, a man by the name of Hanani comes to a servant of God named Nehemiah. And he tells Nehemiah, because Nehemiah asked him, how are things going in Jerusalem? Now, why would Nehemiah care about Jerusalem? People, because it's the city of God. And so Hanani tells him how it goes. He goes, it's horrible. Temple's been destroyed, everything's been burned. And then he tells me, he says, and the walls that surround the city are no more. Remember what the Bible tells us? Nehemiah weeps. And then he fasts and he prays. What's happening, people? There's a problem. And whenever there's a problem, it's the perfect opportunity for a work of God. And so Nehemiah even though he may not realize it right now, in his prayer and in his fasting, he realizes that God has been preparing him for this moment. And now God is about to call him. Can I tell you something? Do you realize that whatever it is that you may be going through right now is part of a plan? And just maybe, just maybe God is preparing you to do something, to step out in faith that he wants to do through you that's going to blow the socks off of everybody in your community. And so Nehemiah, after he fasts and prays, he goes to King Artaxerxes, and he tests what God has put on his heart. And remember in those days, it was not lawful to go into the presence of the king with a sad face. What happened? Nehemiah goes into the presence of Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes, the Bible tells, notices that he's sad. Why the long face? So Nehemiah says, now my chance. He tells him, my city, the city of my God, the walls are in ruins. And then Nehemiah takes the chance. He has that faith. He steps out in faith, believing God is calling him And he says, great king, he says, I'm asking your permission while the queen is there. It always helps to have the wife there. While the queen is there, he asks, I want to go back and I want to rebuild the walls. I want to pause for just a moment and you have to understand this main point. What's the big deal about the walls being torn down? Okay, we'll rebuild the fence. No. The walls around Jerusalem represented the strength of God. Does everybody understand that? Now do you understand why Nehemiah is so upset? Those walls represent to the world the strength of God, and those walls are in ruins. And so Artaxerxes says, not only am I going to let you go, I'm going to give you everything that you need to rebuild those walls. And so Nehemiah heads back. The first thing Nehemiah does is the Bible tells he goes and he looks at all of the walls and what needs to be done, and then he organizes thousands of people, and basically what he had them do was, is he had them build the wall near their home. And the people start building, and they start working. Now listen to me, and the work of God is being accomplished. The work of God is being accomplished. They are doing something that nobody thought could be done. And in chapter 4, remember what we learned in chapter 4? 
that all of a sudden they have great opposition. Who's their opposition? Sambalit, Tobiah, and the people of Ashdod, right? And they're doing everything that they can. What's their purpose? Stop the work of God. That's what Satan wants to do. And sometimes he uses people, a lot of times, to do this work, to stop the work of God. And chapter 4 ends with this. The people, with a trowel in one hand and a weapon in the other, continue to do their work. Now, here's what I want you to remember. In chapters 1 through 4, the work of God is being accomplished. Praise God. But in chapter 5, it changes. The work stops. Do you realize that's the goal of Satan? To stop the work of God. Do you realize in this church, the goal of Satan is to stop the work of God in this church? You know what happens Satan changes the face of the enemy. And the enemy is no longer outside. The enemy is now within. What's Satan's strategy? If I can't beat him, join him. And the work of God ceases. This isn't the first time it happens. I want to show you something in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Take a look at this. This is just after Pentecost. In those days when the number of disciples was what? Increasing. In other words, they're experiencing growth. There they are. They're gathered together in the middle of God's name, and there's growth happening. And what does Satan want to do? He wants to stop the work of God. And look what it says. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so what happened? The work of God stops. It ceases. That's Satan's goal with us as a church. And I'm getting ready to tell you that I'm believing that the God, the Lord of God, the God of our universe is about to call Central Community into a great work. So the question is, is are we willing to step out in faith and do the work of God that he has called us to do? Or are we going to cease and are we just going to stay at the status quo and just stay out of Satan's way? Well, I know that you're better than that. And I know that when God calls us, we answer his call. And let's find out what's going on with these people. In the book of Nehemiah, this is what we read. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So I want to tell you what the problem is, and here's what the problem is. There's a famine going on, okay? You can write that down. I gave you a spot to write it down, okay? 
There's a famine going on, but I want you to understand what are the, the reasons for the famine. Part of the reason is, is that because the people are building the wall, no one's working the fields. No one's working their jobs. And because of that, there's a famine. On top of that, Sambalit and Tobiah and some of the people of Ashdod are sabotaging the people's fields. So that's one problem that they're having, okay? Here's the second thing, taxation. How many can relate to that? Okay? You see, Artaxerxes gave the people the opportunity to have all what they needed to rebuild the wall, but you think he gave it to them for free? No way. He's taxing the people to make sure he gets his money out of it, okay? But there's a third reason why things are having a problem, and that is one we need to pay attention to, and that is this. The people are feeling the burden of the high interest rates. You see, what was happening is there's no food and there's no money, so the Jews were going to their brothers and sisters, and they were asking them for help. And their fellow Jews were giving them exactly what they needed, but they were charging them great interest. Now, the Bible has a name for this. You know what it's called? Usury. Now, here's the funny thing about this. This is exactly one of the reasons that the people went into captivity. Isn't that amazing? They just got out of 70 years of captivity, and they're falling right back into the same traps. All right, well, let me give you a little bit of background about this, okay? In the book of Exodus, this is where we find some of the rules here. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Hmm, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Let's go on. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether or money on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. So what's happening here is that this is what the law says. You may lend money to someone who is Jewish, and you may lend somebody to a foreigner. It also says you may lend something to a foreigner, and you may charge interest. But it's strictly clear that you may lend something to your fellow brother or sister in the Lord, a fellow Jew, but you may not charge interest. All right? We're not done yet. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Remember the year of Jubilee, the 50th year? That's the year that everything returned back to the original owners, okay? All right, now, let's go on. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans, to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. So here's the other thing that was happening. God says, in order for you to pay a debt back, you may give yourself and your family to your lender, but they are to treat you as hired help, not as slaves. And both of these rules within the body of Christ, both of these rules are being violated. 
All right, now, watch what happens now. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is Nehemiah talking. Nehemiah's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because the people have turned on each other. The Bible tells us that there is such a thing as a righteous anger, right? In fact, it tells us in Ephesians, it says, be angry and do not sin. In the beginning, Nehemiah was crying. Now he's angry. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you got angry because of the violation of somebody and what they did to your God? When was, when was the last time that you got angry because somebody violated God's principles? You know what's happening to us? Our attitude, and even within the church, is that if it doesn't affect me, I'm good. We have become apathetic. And my friends, that's not of God. God desires us. You know what? If my brother is going through a difficult time, what are we supposed to do here? We're supposed to go alongside of them and help them. Being angry against that which is done against our God is something that should be seen in the believer. All right, let's go on with this. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Now, here we see that, well, I'll tell you, Nehemiah is a great leader. How do we know that? He does not want to react. He wants to respond. How does he respond? He thinks about it. He doesn't just go after the people. He thinks about it, and he comes up with what he's going to say to them. And it says, I told them you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could say nothing. They had nothing to say. So what happened here? Well, Nehemiah confronts them. Nehemiah demonstrates what it means to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But when he speaks, the words that come from him are so convicting that the people have nothing to say. Now watch this. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Now, I really need you to understand and listen to what Nehemiah is saying to them. He is saying to them, people, we're supposed to look different than the rest of the world. Amen. And right now, our enemies are watching us, and you know what? They can't tell any difference. We're doing the exact same stuff that they would do. My friends, who is it that rejoices when churches fail. It's the world, right? And what did they say? Oh, look, they can preach it, they can teach it, but boy, they sure can't live it. And God has said to you and I that we have our chosen people and we have called to be different than the rest of the world. What does that look like? It means that we don't go into, as Peter says, the desires of our flesh. If you're going to bring up politics with somebody that doesn't agree with you, Peter tells us, that's fine, but you better make sure that the way you are acting is a way that represents the Lord Jesus Christ, because you're supposed to be different. 
This is not about arguing. This is not about putting other people down. You can speak the truth in love, but you are a different people. Now, then Nehemiah goes on. He says, listen, you know what you're in danger of, church? You're in danger of losing your witness. You're in danger of losing your testimony. In other words, because of the way you live your life is so contrary to what God has commanded you to do, when you do speak the gospel, when you do preach about the Lord, no one's going to listen to you because they know you say one thing, but you live another. Remember David? Do you remember when somebody came to David's door, and they knocked on, and they said, David, uh, the prophet Nathan is here to see you. Show him in. And Nathan comes in, and do you remember Nathan told David a story? Boy, he was just, <laughs> right? And as he told this story, David got angry. Do you remember what happened? The Bible tells us that David got so angry that he really said, whoever this man is, boy, he deserves a severe punishment. And then do you remember what Nathan said? You are the man. Can you imagine how wide David's mouth got and how instantaneously David knew Nathan spoke truth? And then right away, do you remember what Nathan said to him? He said, your sin is forgiven. He said, your child will die. But then he said something in verse 14 that just grabs a hold of my heart. Here's what it is. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, we have given what the world needs to look at us and point a finger at us and say, see, you can't live what you believe. And God says, that's the worst part because I have given you, Central Community, to be a church that is a light that shines in the darkness. Because remember that God's goal is for us as a people to be a model people so he can do his work through us and the rest of the world will say, look at what God is doing through those people at Central Community. I brought with me a candle this morning, and I want to close the service with this, if I could, please. This candle is you. This candle is me. This candle is all of us. And here we are in this world, if this sanctuary is like our world, Here we are, and we are burning bright. But you notice that the candle doesn't really make that big of a difference in this lit room, right? You know why that is? It's because the light from the candle is in harmony with the light from the room, right? 
This is the world that we used to live in. When Jesus tells us to let your light so shine, we were very much a Christian nation. Would you agree? And so our light maybe was hard to see because it blended in so well with the surroundings. Joel, would you turn the lights off, please? This is our world now. Do you notice in the darkness how bright this light shines? Why is that? Because the contrast is so great. The light doesn't look like its surroundings anymore. It's not in harmony anymore. And now it shines brighter. My friends, the Lord Jesus told us that the world was going to come to an end and that it would get dark and it would get darker. But he also reminded us that that's the time when the light shines the brightest. The Lord Jesus is saying to Central Community Church, Central, my bride, Yes, the world is getting darker, but now I need you to shine bright. And I want you to know that even in the midst of this darkness, the darker it gets, the brighter you will shine. Yes, Satan will come after you with everything. He will try to seek, to steal, kill, and destroy. But you remember, greater is he that is in me that's in the world, and I've given you each other so you can walk the journey together. By this light, the world will know that you are my disciples. Central community, let's be aware of Satan, his schemes, his methods, his strategy, and how he works. And let us stand firm with the gospel and the shoes of peace. Let us firmly put on the armor of God each and every day and let's help one another so that our light will shine, that the world may see the good works that we're doing and give praise to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word, for this message because it cuts deep. Lord, we are your church, and we don't want to be just any church. We want to be that church, that light on the top of the hill that the rest of the world can look at and see. Look how bright the light is shining. And you've told us we can't do this alone. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and we do it with one another, leaning on and holding each other in our arms. Father, there's something that is, I'm believing that you have for us. And Lord, my prayer is, is that the first thing we would do is fall on our knees, that we would fast, that we would pray, that we would seek your direction. And then, Lord, just simply be obedient. Thank you 
for what you're about to do. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the lives of your people. And may the way we live our life be an example to everyone else that Jesus is King. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Would you please stand? Now comes the fun part. You get to go out in the world. Receive the benediction, that which you need to do the work that God has given to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, his joy, and his strength. Go and shine bright in the world. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you next week.